Well, it's been a few weeks, but we have been studying the book of Exodus because it is the picture book that God gives us in regards to redemption. It is a picture of what God is going to do for his people and using Israel as this a shadow of events to come. And we're so used to reading the New Testament, the things about Christ, and yet so much of what Jesus does while he is on the earth is uh, fulfilling these pictures that are found in the first five books of the Old Testament, in particular, even the, the book of Exodus. And so what we're doing is we are going through and observing these pictures. Moses himself in, in Deuteronomy will even make the point and say that in the future that God would raise up a prophet just like him. And Israel was then in longing anticipation for this prophet to come who would be like Moses and do these things. And so it requires us to have a better understanding of Moses and what God is doing through Moses so that we can see the great picture of redemption in in a greater fullness when we look at it in the New Testament. So this evening we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 10 verses and make that our study this evening. So you have your Bibles there, Exodus 2. Begin in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw it was a child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. All right, we're going to spend our our time in looking at this picture. It is interesting how the story of of Moses begins. Uh, It begins in the first two verses uh, with really a genealogy of insignificance. And what I mean by that is if you notice verse 1, we have no names. We aren't given, okay, and his name, if dad's name is this and the mother's name is this, it just simply begins a man from the house of Levi and we have a wife then, a woman that is a, a, a Levite woman. Uh, and what is interesting so far is 
throughout the story until Moses is finally named in verse 10, we aren't given anybody's name. And we saw that in chapter 1 as well, where we're not given anybody's name until we finally come to the two Hebrew midwives who come to the rescue and say, we're not going to obey uh, Pharaoh's edict. And so it is interesting that you have this setup of no names and the concern seems to just simply be this, is that here is the child that is born and he is already pre-qualified to operate uh, as a spiritual leader and to be a leader of, of the people because he's going to be born of Levites. And so we immediately think of the priesthood in terms of Levi. And so we don't know who these people are and all the text wants you to know and has the only concern of He's from the tribe of Levi, and that's going to be useful in considering him. Please recognize that that's how that operates when you come to the New Testament. When you come to the book of Matthew and reread that genealogy there, you recognize that it's skipping people. It's only highlighting certain names in Matthew 1. It doesn't name every single male that comes uh, all the way back from David and, and all of that. What you have been set up in Matthew is... This child that is going to be born, that is God with us, he's pre-qualified to be king because look at this lineage. He's of the king line. And so he belongs to be king. Well, you have this happening with Moses. All that we're concerned about in this beginning point is that he is worthy of being a leader. He is going to be a spiritual leader of the people. Have you ever read verse 2? And thought that is perhaps one of the strangest things you've ever read. Notice what it says. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now remember what's going on. Is that in chapter 1, we saw the end of it begin with the decree has been given by Pharaoh. That all of the nation is supposed to go about throwing the Hebrew children boys that are two years old. And when they're born, they're supposed to be cast into the river. And so it's a a time of doom, a time of darkness, a, a time of evil that rests over the land. And here you have this statement made. And so when she conceives, she bears a son. And when she saw that he was a, a fine child, some of your translation may say a beautiful child, she hid him three months. And you read that and go, so are you saying if the baby wasn't beautiful, you would have thrown him in the Nile? I mean, what are you saying by that? Because that's a really strange way to put that. What well, mom would go, well, that wasn't a beautiful kid. I guess that one's okay. We'll try again. Uh, it's interesting that that wording uh, over in Hebrews, it doesn't help us too much. It says the same thing. Hebrews 11 verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Again, it sounds like the, the physical beauty of the child is the reason why they disobey uh, Pharaoh's command. And that's why they go ahead and hide him. Stephen, I think, helps us out the most in his sermon. Uh, in Acts 7, in verse 20, when he speaks of this event, he says, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And that makes a whole lot more sense <laughs> of what's going on here. Is that It's not that the parents looked at Moses and said, Wow, he's really pretty, I guess we should keep him. What they're doing is recognizing that this child is going to be special to God. And that's going to play out a few times in these beginning points. In fact, it's going to come out again. We won't get to, get to it tonight, but verses 11 uh, to the end of the chapter, that idea is going to come in, into play again. Is that there is an understanding that Moses is significant to God. 
that this child is going to do something, that he is going to be special and accomplish something for God. And they understand he is beautiful in God's sight and what he is going to do. And that's what Stephen is highlighting and what the text is bearing out here when they when Moses is born is that they are recognizing this child is going to do great things by the hand of God. And that is certainly going to be the case. Now, as the story unfolds, it's a story that we know so well that I think we are unable to recreate a lot of the tension that would have existed as you first read that story, if it were the first time you were ever coming across it. But there are these great images that are coming across, uh, particularly in, in, in verse 3 as, as it's laid out. First, as it begins in verse 3, it says, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch and placed the child in it among the reeds by the riverbank. The first thing to notice is all of our translations say basket except the New King James. The New King James calls it an ark. And if you had a New King James, you'd say that's a really strange way to describe what this is but that's actually the literal hebrew word it's the same hebrew word in genesis 6 when the ark is built as noah builds the ark for his salvation for him and his family what is being set up for the reader here and what is missed by the idea of a basket is god is going to save moses through water just as he saved noah and his family through water this ark imagery is being set up and if you remember in our first uh, study of exodus we talked about how these are really five volumes and not separate books and so Exodus is connecting back to Genesis repeatedly. And so the reader is already cluing in and going, oh, here is this horrible death decree for all the children. What's going to happen to this Moses who is special in the sight of God, clearly designated by God to do good things? He's going to be put in an ark. Deliverance is coming. We're about to see salvation occur. And so it's a a beautiful picture because what becomes then the intended source of death is now the means of rescuing Moses. Then this Nile River in which all these Hebrew baby boys are supposed to be thrown into now becomes the means by which salvation is going to come. Moses will be rescued through the water rather than die in the water, which we're going to notice these parallels all the time. And we've talked about this in so many of our studies, how God likes to use an image and he'll repeat it again and again and again. The most obvious parallel of this is when we come into the New Testament And here is the cross, which is intended to be the source of death by the Romans, which the Jews want to have happen. That's why they don't want to do it by their own hands. Let's have the Romans kill Christ on a cross actually becomes the means of salvation for the whole world. And this is what's happening here in the days of Moses. Here is the the Nile River intended to be doom and destruction for all the Hebrew boys that would be born. And actually it's going to turn out to be for the rescue of Moses who's then going to set all the people free. And so you get a great picture of that. Not only that, I think it's important to please read where Moses' mother put Moses. It is surprising to me how many books that I have read and movies you may have seen that give the picture of 
They put Moses in the basket and he's dodging crocodiles and waterfalls as he's going down the Nile River and it's amazing that he just made it through all that. It says that they put him in the reeds along the riverbank. <laughs> okay. They didn't just go, all right, let's put the baby in and shove him down the river and go, I hope he makes it, you know? I mean, come on. Uh, but so many movies and stories will do that. And I, like, I read scholars write that, you know, dodging the crocodiles down the river. And really? Uh, I, the, Moses' sister is right there. They obviously they went like this. <laughs> you know, and stood back and watched what was about to happen. That would make the most logical sense of what's going on. And God is clearly watching over Moses and all of this. And so this isn't some wild ride down the river, but this is just simply putting him over to the side so that he is able to be rescued. And, and verse 5 is perhaps the, the strongest uh, if you were to read that for the first time where you would just think, this is the biggest oh no ever. Okay, you have your boy and you are trying to hide him from the Egyptians. And so you put him in the basket and you put him over in the, among the reeds. And of all the people that could possibly find your baby boy that you're trying to keep safe, it's the daughter of Pharaoh. And you'd go, oh no. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to have happen. It is the daughter of the Pharaoh that's decreed all the Hebrew boys that are born need to be cast into the river. And so you immediately have this tension that's building up as the event is unfolding going, this seems to be the last thing you would want to have happen. But there's irony that happens here in the story. And it happens really in the first two chapters. It is Pharaoh's daughter who then rescues Moses. You would expect Pharaoh's daughter to carry out the decree just in all haste. Just go grab the child in the river. It's simple. It's right there. But instead, Pharaoh's daughter rescues, defies, she herself defies Pharaoh's decree and rescues Moses, rescues this Hebrew boy. Remember in chapter 1 what we saw, the Hebrew midwives are defying the, the, the Pharaoh's orders. Now chapter 2, we see Pharaoh's daughter uh, defying the orders. What I want you to see Exodus setting up is this picture of the women being involved in the preservation of Moses' life. Here in chapter 1, we see it's the Hebrew midwives who will not submit to the decree, and they're the ones that are keeping the Hebrew boys safe. And now it is Pharaoh's daughter, another woman, who rescues Moses and, and keeps him safe. Is it any wonder when you come to the New Testament, there is often an emphasis made in regards to the life of Jesus and this critical role that the women played in the life of Jesus, particularly in Luke's Gospel. Luke's gospel goes out of its way to speak of that, particularly like Luke chapter 8. And in, in verse 1, where it reads there, and the, 12 were with, and the twelve were with him, and also some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and their infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. Here is this picture of, here are these disciples of Jesus who are women, and they are providing for Jesus and the disciples. And here you have that same kind of picture here. Who are the ones that are rescuing Moses through this that God is using? The Hebrew women and 
Pharaoh's daughter. And so again, you're seeing these shadows and seeing these parallels being laid out. For when Christ comes, here are some of the things that we are looking for because this is what had happened to Moses earlier in his life. Throughout this, we are seeing the the great providence of God. Uh, Perhaps the most staggering of it all is, so here is Moses' sister saying, so do you want me to get one of the Hebrews to be able to to take care of of this, this infant? Yes, go get one. And then she goes and gets mom, of course. And then I'll pay her to do it, which is great. You know, it's like she would have done that for free, obviously. But here's God working through that and say, yeah, I'm going to rescue my Savior here. I'm going to use him as the tool and the instrument to deliver Israel. And in the process is even financially supporting Moses' mother as he is going to be taking care of him. And so it's a really a beautiful picture of what God is going to do when the new deliverance and the new redemption comes in the new covenant. These great shadows and these great pictures. When Moses then is, is taken back to his mother and is going to be raised for a time. But I want you to notice in verse 10. It says there, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses. I think that's interesting that that point is being made here. As though he is a Hebrew, Moses is going to live the life of the Egyptian. The book of Acts underlines that strongly saying, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and deeds. Acts 7.22 So he knows the Egyptian way. He's educated in the Egyptian system. He is even when classified as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. Again, you're seeing a great image here in terms of Christ who originates at uh, the Father's hand in heaven, yet he's going to come to earth and live a full life here, be recognized among us as a human, and then he'll return back. And so again, you're getting these dynamics of what God is going to do. Yes, Moses is a Hebrew, but he's going to be an Egyptian for a while, but he's not going to be an Egyptian forever. He's going to go back to then being the rescuer here of of the Hebrews. Final point that's seen here just in terms of the text itself before we look at some of the New Testament implications is his name. You have to like how the author with intention withholds this name all the way to the very end. He's just the child, the child, the child. It's, It's just holding on to this to point out I want you to know his name means drawn out. And there's a lot of uh, facets to that idea because for Pharaoh's daughter, it's simply, well, I drew him out of water. But it's far more than that of what it's going to be because in the next chapter, what's going to happen? Well, God's going to draw Moses out and call to him and, and set him for the work that he's about to do to deliver his people. And not only that, what is Moses' whole work going to do? But to draw Israel out of Egyptian slavery. The the name drawn out fits for this man perfectly. As from the very beginning we are seeing that this is the man who is a picture of salvation. His very beginnings is a picture of the rescue and the salvation of God. God has delivered him from the sentence of death that has gone throughout the land. God has rescued him from, from the Nile and is now going to use him to to be the deliverer and the savior of the nation of Israel. And so you have all of that build up and all of that tension. 
Now, I want to just talk about two concepts that that come out of this that are really big concepts in terms of this picture of redemption and what that means of how God was going to show his people what redemption was going to, to look like. Let's talk about this redemption thing, because it is fascinating to see. The frequency by which God likes to have salvation occur through water. That happens a lot. It starts in Genesis with Noah, who is saved through water. We just read tonight, we have Moses. He is going to be saved through water. In a few chapters, we're going to get to the Exodus. And how is Israel going to be saved? Through water. They are going to pass through the Red Sea. Before they enter the promised land, how is Israel going to go? They're going to pass through water again. And they're going to go through the the Jordan River. We can even come to the prophets. Here is our wayward prophet Jonah. How is Jonah saved? Jonah is saved by water. When we get to the New Testament, and here is John the baptizer. What's John the baptizer doing? He's baptizing people in the Jordan River and saving Israel through water yet again. The prophets throughout the prophecies are talking about salvation would come through water. One one of the places that we see that, Isaiah 44 verse 3. In this promise of a new covenant and a new hope and new blessings that God is going to accomplish when the Messiah comes. He says, I will pour water on a thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Again, this imagery of when Christ comes, a pouring of water, a pouring of blessings is going to come. I haven't had a chance to listen to all of my dad's sermons. There were a lot of them. So I know he talked a lot about these kind of images. And so the things he said connect up into this idea because this is what the scriptures are talking about again and again. And then guess what happens? You come to the New Testament and what does Peter now say? He uses in chapter 3 verse 20 the imagery of Noah, right? He goes back to the imagery of Noah and says that Noah was saved through water. And then what's the point? Now in verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. There should not be any surprise if we've studied the scriptures at all to come to the New Testament and see that there would be an activity of those who would belong to him where we would be saved through water. That goes all the way back to Genesis. That's the the very picture that God uses again and again and again is salvation through water with Noah, Moses, Israel, his prophets, John the baptizer, Jesus teaches it, the apostles are teaching it and performing it. And Peter makes that very same point. This is the means by which God is going to accomplish salvation. And so it's a beautiful picture for us in terms of what God is doing for us, that he is reminding us of this. And it's important to keep in mind, 
Uh, it's a shame that these things have to be said. But when we talk about baptism, we're obviously not talking about some sort of mindless act or faithless act. You know, let's just you know dump people in water and there, there, there you go. It is an act of faith. That's what what Peter is saying there. This is this is our appeal to God for a good conscience. We are asking God for forgiveness. We are making that appeal to Him, and so it is the same picture that's given throughout the Scriptures. And here is this picture given to us again and so when Jesus teaches it when the apostles are performing it when we see John the baptizer performing it this is why it would not have been foreign to anyone who heard those words that they would have said well what is the strange thing about salvation through water you speak of it's all over the old testament and it is spoken of by the prophets and we see it then accomplished in the new testament now God saves us through water as well as we make our appeal to him to save us from our sins as we have faith in Jesus who has died, who has raised, and is seated on the throne. That's the whole picture and the whole argument Peter is making. It's important that we not lose sight of that image that God had established from the very beginning. The second picture that we see here is really a picture of hope. Again, I want you to try to put yourself in the scene of what's happening in those first two chapters. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of being a family in Israel. Imagine being Moses' parents. Imagine being any of these parents who are are bearing children. And I want you to, to think about how hopeless this situation would have looked like. We don't know how many other children would have died during this time as we're awaiting a deliverer to come and rescue the people. We often can read that and go, and, and nobody died through all that. It, uh, unlikely, uh, highly unlikely. This is a time of darkness, a time of gloom. It is a t- time of death. It would be a terrible time. And what I'm wanting us to think about is while there is this command for all the Hebrew boys to be thrown into the river in what would appear to be the seemingly hopeless situation of death, God is at work. To save his people. You could not have taken a poll of anybody in Israel living there in the land of Goshen and said, now who sees God working as all the Hebrew boys are being thrown into the river? Yeah. Well, I see God's going to save. You wouldn't have seen it. There would have been nothing observable that you would have said, clearly God is going to rescue at any moment. You would have no thought of that. But we're being told here in chapter 2, in spite of all of the evidence of chapter 1, how Pharaoh is concerned and he is resisting the plans of God and he is attempting to kill these Hebrew boys so that there is not a rebellion against his empire, God is working. And you don't see what he's doing. It's not observable to human eyes. But God is at work. God is accomplishing things. And it's so important for us to see that because I can just imagine if we were in Israel at that time and sitting in the land of of Egypt as Israelites, and we would just be saying, "Well, well, God's far away and he doesn't care about us anymore. He doesn't listen to our groaning. and, And here we are enslaved and it's burdensome. And God was already working. God was already involved. In fact, to see in this scene how many times God is moving these pieces around to put them in place just so, so that Moses can be the rescuer. 
God is already working through the life of Moses and through these parents and through Pharaoh's daughter and through the Hebrew midwives to accomplish his purpose. We could fast forward that to the New Testament. And if we were able to be at the foot of the cross of Jesus, as there he is dying, and there are the women there, the disciples have have run, who is looking at that scene amongst them going, well, this is the plan of God, and this is how God's going to save us. That's not what they're saying. We read about the two men on the road to Emmaus. What are they saying? We thought he was the one, but apparently he wasn't. They're looking at this going, it is a time of hopelessness and darkness and doom. And so the ones that we thought was going to, the one we thought was going to save us, we don't think he is. And then Jesus goes, yeah, it actually is. But nobody saw that at the moment. It is through that darkness and through that despair that God is accomplishing his purposes. And I think it's just so important for us to see that as well. We don't know what God is doing. We've beaten on that anvil in the book of Job again and again and again. We don't get to see the chapter one and chapter two of our lives of what's going on. We don't get to have the picture of, well, God's going to tell me how he's working and how he's accomplishing his purposes and how this is going to refine my faith and make me a stronger Christian and, and how he's moving all these things. We're not given any of that. And so we simply have two choices. We can either give up on God and say, well, he doesn't care. He's far away. He's not involved in the world anymore. and He doesn't care about my life. Or we can see the evidence of the scriptures that is portrayed to us book after book after book that says you don't see him at work, but boy, he is at work. He is accomplishing his purposes. He is doing his will. And people in the days of Exodus didn't know what that will was, but God was accomplishing it. And people didn't see in the days of the kings of Israel what God was working, but he was working it and he was accomplishing it. And you come to the New Testament and here is Christ, the one who's supposed to deliver the world and save the world, and he's crucified. And that's exactly what God's plan was. While the world would look at that and go... Well, obviously, God's not at work. We have to stand back and be amazed and recognize that God is at work. And that's what gives us hope in times of suffering, in times of difficulties, in days of darkness, in days of despair, like these days that these people would have gone through, that that does not mean that God is not at work. And this is where faith comes in to believe that God is at work. And we say, well, why should we have faith in that? Because that's what God did over and over and over and over again. This is why, one of the reasons why this book is this thick. (laughs) is so that we would read it and see God working in the lives of people and working in the world again and again and again and again. In unimaginable ways, whether it be through people who we would not expect to be prophets or leaders or saviors like Moses, to even using kings like Nebuchadnezzar and kings like Cyrus to accomplish his purposes, to even coming to the New Testament and using one of his own disciples to be a betrayer to accomplish his purposes. Things that we would look at and go, Something's gone wrong. And God says, I'm accomplishing my plan. 
that gives us hope. And I hope that that would give you hope in your time of difficulty. That you would see this consistent thread that all the way back in Exodus, God is giving you a picture of redemption that he would repeat again and again until he would show it in its grandest way. The cross of Jesus Christ in which Jesus would save the world from sins and gives us hope that if we put our trust in him, we put our faith in him, he's with us. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. If you'll hold fast, be strong, stand in the strength of the might of the Lord, and do not give up in your fight against Satan and in your walk with God. We'll sing a song now, and we're going to sing.